We've been in a series of messages through the book of Galatians, and we're in chapter 6 this morning, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, a message I call, Lift Up the Fallen, Lift Up the Fallen. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Uh, Paul has been addressing one of the great uh, problems in the New Testament era, uh, one that continues to be a problem for us today, and that is the problem of sin in the life of a believer. What happens when a believer sins? Specifically, in their day, it had to do with the question that was being asked. If the law of Moses has been taken away with all of its rigid rules and standards and codes of conduct, and we'll talk more about that as the message develops, what is going to keep people from just living however they want? How, If we don't have the law then to control our behavior, then what does? How are we going to deal with this? Uh, Paul responded to that by telling us that the law never did really restrain the flesh. Uh, that it was there, it's still there. And uh, they had instead kind of a, an imagined, if you will, uh, view of their spirituality based on the things that they do, the obvious things that they could do, and the things that they couldn't do or didn't do. Uh, there were things that they had to do, they were required to do, and when they did that, they were uh, obeying the Sabbath laws, they were eating the right kinds of food, avoiding the wrong kinds of food, they tithed on their income, they did all of these things that the law required them to do. They avoided the things that the law told them not to do. And you could look at those things because they were all on the outside. They're all external. Uh, but you know, the real problem with humanity is in the heart. And it's much more difficult to see those things that are on the inside. It's hard to know that we're prideful. We can be eat up with pride and not know it. It's hard to know that we're selfish or self-centered. We can make everything all about us. And really not be aware of it. Jealousy. Envy. All, of other, all, all those other things in the heart. Can be all over us. And us not be able to see it. You remember how that Jesus talked about that very thing in the Sermon on the Mount. When he talked about all the things that were on the outside. Uh, but then there were things on the inside, on the heart. And he talked over and over again about how that they could evaluate things or want to do things or desire to do things in their heart. So it wasn't just on what was on the outside, but it was what was on the inside. Jesus said that it's out of the heart that precedes all kinds of sin. And so the, the problem of the law is it created an illusion of spirituality because they did the right things and didn't do uh, the wrong things. But on the inside, there was still a problem. And when Jesus came, he brought what was on the inside to the outside. Because those devout, devoted followers of Judaism rejected Jesus Christ, hated him, and crucified him. And so what was on the inside suddenly was on the outside. The law, you see, had failed. Paul forcefully taught that the flesh resists the spirit and the spirit resists the flesh with the result that as believers in Christ we're left kind of in a constant state of tension. On the one hand there's the spirit and in the spiritual side of us as a believer in Christ we want to do what is right 
and what is true and what is good. But there's another side of us, and that side is the flesh, and it is constantly resisting the Spirit so that the Spirit can always do what it wants to do. But while that is true, it's also true that as a believer, we have the flesh, and the flesh wants to do a lot of things, but the Spirit resists that. So we don't just turn the flesh loose to do whatever the flesh wants to do either. So as a believer, then, we experience a measure of victory over sin, but we also experience a measure of the agony of defeat. But in the Old Testament economy, there was another aspect to this. And it was brought up within this concept of witnesses. He that despised, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 28 says, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. They died without mercy. The penalty for disobedience under the Old Testament economy was a brutal form of execution known as stoning. The witnesses provided a crucial role for the law in a way made, law of Moses made everybody a mandatory reporter. Now, if you're a pastor or teacher or medical professional right now, you're a mandatory reporter. What that means is, is that if I see somebody who is committing a crime against a child, a a child or somebody is being neglected or abused, uh, then I have to hotline that. I'm required to do that. I'm a mandatory reporter. But under the Old Testament economy, it wasn't just professionals. It was everybody who, in a sense, became a mandatory reporter. If you saw someone who was despising Moses' law, violating the principles of the law of Moses, then you were required to tell the people in authority. Under two or three witnesses, then, that person uh, could actually be executed capital punishment the witnesses you see played a crucial role in this they witnessed and they threw rocks John 8 gave an example of this in the ministry of Jesus I I won't read all of this passage to you today you can read it at home if you're not familiar with it it's John chapter 8 and there in verse 3 the Bible says the scribes and Pharisees the religious leaders brought to him Jesus a woman caught in adultery And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Now, then and now, uh, adultery is an act of sexual intimacy by a married person with someone other than their spouse. The very nature of the act itself makes it notoriously difficult to produce witnesses. After all, people who are committing adultery usually go to great lengths to try to hide it so that it's not found out. However, this scene played out in John chapter 8, though, the required two or three witnesses were no doubt in place, and they immediately brought to Jesus this woman caught in the act and the penalty Moses commanded that she be stoned. That was not the truth. Actually, it's only part of the truth. Moses commanded that both parties be stoned. The law of Moses, you see, provided that both of them would be executed. They didn't bring the man. I don't know why. uh, But they did bring the woman. Jesus knew full well. That these religious leaders were just trying to trap him. They were not trying to enforce the provisions of the law. They were not doing this out of zeal for the law. They were out to put Jesus in a bad spot. 
They knew that many of his followers were from the uh, party crowd in, in Israel, and they knew that they would reject him if he uh, called for the enforcement of the law. Uh, they knew that if he led out in this, as they were trying to get him to do, then that would get him in trouble with the Romans because they would have gone straight to the watching garrison and blamed Jesus for the resulting uproar. They wanted Jesus to lead the execution. Now again, as you go forward in the New Testament, you're going to see an occasion where this very thing played out with a man by the name of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Now Stephen was one of the first deacons. But he was also a mighty evangelist. And he was accused, people accused him, lied about him, and accused him of blaspheming God by preaching the gospel. Stephen gave his defense, and at the end of the defense, uh, any pretense was, of civility was thrown away because they became a howling mob that drug him out of the city and stoned him, who was in charge of the execution. We know him. He was a young man named Saul of Tarsus. Later became Paul. <laughs> it's one of those intriguing and wonderful demonstrations of the gospel that Paul, once he died was probably welcomed into heaven by Stephen and others, perhaps, that he had persecuted and slain. Isn't the gospel wonderful? So here's a, an occasion, though, where witnesses were brought. They brought them in. Uh, the man then was declared to be guilty, and they took him out and stoned him. We know that this system was also ripe for abuse, and it was abused. You might be familiar with the Old Testament story of, of King Ahab, his wicked wife Jezebel, and Naboth, the righteous man. Ahab wanted his vineyard, and uh, Naboth wouldn't sell it, and so they hired wicked men, sons of Belial, the King James called it, to give testimony against him, accused him of blasphemy, and Naboth then was surrounded by a mob of people who stoned him to death. And his land was lost. Imagine then what it was like to live under that kind of situation. You understand why Jesus said that a man's enemies will be of his own household. When it became a crime of blasphemy to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. When they declared it to be blasphemous to believe on Jesus and to reject then the law of Moses. It was very possible and in fact did happen. That children would testify against their parents. They've become Christians. Parents would testify against their children. They've accepted Christ. But even in that broader sense, imagine living in a place where there were so many watching eyes and any transgression could be reported and land you in public trial and maybe even cost you your life. At the very least, in such an environment, they had a strong motivation for keeping the law of Moses. Are you with me? See, they're asking the question, if the law is gone with its rigid rules and requirements, and all of this means of enforcement, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. If we take all of that away, then what? What happens now? How are we going to live with this situation without the law? Now, I've given you all that just so you could go back in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 and look at this passage again. 
Brothers, if a man is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, watching yourself, lest you should also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What a massive change has happened. Where under the Old Testament economy, the witnesses would bear witness and throw rocks. Now, what are we called on to do as the people of God? We are to restore those who are fallen. Sin still happens for those on, who are in Christ and on this side of Calvary. We still see it happen. So what are we going to do? But we understand, and it's important for us to remember, there's a great measure of personal responsibility when it comes to this matter of living out our Christian life. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And so there's our own personal responsibility of keeping up that fight against the flesh and against sin. But there's also corporate responsibility you see, we look at Jesus' words in John chapter 8, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. And we might say, well, hey, I've, I've got sin in my life too. Who am I? We need to remember, folk, that God hasn't called us to throw rocks. He has called us to restore, to lift up those who are fallen into sin. Our goal is to help them and to restore them. So when it comes to this matter of our struggle with the flesh, uh, then we understand, first of all, we're not in this alone because we have the Spirit of God with us. And then secondly, we're not in this alone because we have our brothers and sisters in Christ to help us and restore us. We look at our own life. We look at that man or woman we see in the mirror and we see sin. We look around us in our world, we see sin. We look at the biblical record of all the people mentioned in the Bible. And that it's far easier for us to number the ones who didn't have some great uh, obvious failure than those who did. There's not many Daniels in the Bible. Most of them had a problem. The ones who didn't have a problem are small in number. And when we look at all those people mentioned in the Bible and we look around us and we look at ourselves... It doesn't mean that we're bad people. It doesn't mean that we're lost people if we're struggling with sin. Uh, it does mean that maybe we've gone down in a moment of defeat. It's important for us to understand that this passage is not talking about a person who turns their back on God in the Bible and just goes out to, and says, I, I'm just going to forget about all that and go, go off to live however. That, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a person who is trying to live for God, trying to do what's right, who loves Jesus, loves the church, loves the Bible, and yet they still struggle with sin. They still are caught in a fault, a failure. So when someone has fallen into sin, then how do we respond? And the first thing is very obvious in our, in our text. We are to help them up. Brothers, if a man is caught in any transgression, you, are, you who are spiritual should restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. Now the word restore was often used of mending a net that was torn. It could also be used of, of a broken bone that had been set and mended. And 
I want to elaborate on that for a moment and allow, uh, ask you to uh, use your imagination. Imagine a little boy, his, his parents had told him very faithfully, you know, you don't climb up in those trees. And, and yet he, he got out there and he, he was up one. He got up way higher than he should and he didn't realize when he put his foot down that the limb was broken. That you hear the pop and, and down he comes. He hits the ground and now he's lying there on the ground. Little boy, precious little boy, uh, but he's broke his leg. And he's hollering, of course, because he's in a lot of pain. So how do you respond? Well, no matter how much you might want to, you don't go running up to that little fellow there with a broke leg screaming and hollering and saying, hey, I told you not to go up in that tree and you should have never been up there and you should have listened to me and love, you know, we've, as much as we want to preach him a sermon at that moment, that is not what they need. They're hurting. Now, it's not a time for us to take pictures and put it on Facebook. No. Uh, it's not a time for grabbing up everybody and pointing out how broken and messed up the kid is. Uh, he, he's not an animal like a, like a beef cat. Uh, it's not, a, it's not a, a steer. And say, well, he's broke his leg, so we've got to put him down. That may sound like a terrible thing to say, but I just want to remind you that the Christian community has not always been known as the most sympathetic crowd. So if we're not then going to put them down, if it's not time to preach them a sermon, if we're not going to put it on Facebook, if we're not going to do these things, then what are we going to do? <laughs> we're going to help him. We're going to restore him. Now Jesus spoke to the religious leaders of his day, and he said in verse 4 of Matthew chapter 23, they, that is the religious leaders, are binding heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. May God help us today not to be the kind of people, not to be the kind of church. May God help me not to be the kind of preacher that takes hurting people and makes them hurt more. That adds to their burden and does nothing to help lift that burden. The New Testament tells us that we're all members of the body of Christ and of one another. Brothers and sisters in Christ. And because of this in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers sin, we all suffer with it. If one member is honored or exalted, then all the members rejoice with it. So if that broken person who has fallen into sin, if they don't need a sermon at that particular moment in time, if they don't need everybody talking about them, they don't need to be put down, uh, then we can also say then they don't need their problem to be ignored. We don't say to that person with a broken leg and the bone sticking out, hey, you know, if you just wear some looser clothes, nobody would probably notice. No. If they've got a broken leg, you can't ignore it. It needs help. So how do we respond then? If we get past these inclinations that we have, just to look away, just to ignore it, to talk about it, to add to their problems. If we don't do that, then what do we do? Uh, first, we respond to them gently. Gently. When somebody has fallen and is hurt, you know that moving them is going to hurt them. But they have to be moved, and so you're going to be as gentle about it as possible. There are a lot of fallen Christian people 
who need to be gently moved by God's people. Let's be gentle. Then we need to respond, we need to restore with humility. We know good and well that we're far from being without sin ourselves. In fact, we may have struggled with the very same thing that we see somebody else struggling with. And ideally, that's the way it's going to be. Because then we can say to that person, hey, I know what it's like. I, I know where you are. I've been there myself. And when I tell you, you don't have to stay there. I know because I was once where you are. And God and God's grace and God's people have, have brought me out of that. It may be just the opposite. It may be somebody else is struggling with something that you've never struggled with. That doesn't make you superior. It just means you don't have their problem. You've got your own. So we respond. We help people then with humility. We restore with meekness, and that means self-control, especially if you're reaching out to somebody who struggles with somebody you used to struggle with. Because you can be drawn right back into that lifestyle that you've worked so hard by the grace of God to get away from. And we respond then with sympathy or compassion. And we do that because we're a spiritual people and the Holy Spirit moves in us. And remember, the Holy Spirit is our comforter, not our accuser. And so we move with the same spirit as the Holy Spirit uh, uh, and, and with the same attitude that Jesus had. We move with compassion. So we restore gently. We restore with humility. We restore with meekness. We restore with sympathy and with compassion. The great preacher Adrian Rogers was fond of saying there are three people sitting in that pew right where you are. And I'll add this morning that there's three people standing here behind this pulpit where I am. There's the person that you are right now by the grace of God. There's the person then that you can be by God's grace and for His glory. But then there's also the person that you can be if you turn away from God. Turn away from God's word. All three of them are there. And if we'll remember that, it helps us then to respond with sympathy and compassion to others. Thank God somebody has responded that way to you along the way in your life. Somebody has come to you with compassion. Someone has come to you gently. Someone has come to you with sympathy. Someone has come to you with meekness. And they helped you. Maybe they helped you at a time when you didn't even know you needed help until you got it. See, God didn't put us in the rock-throwing business. He put us in the restoration business. And so we help one another up when we see our brothers and sisters fall. And then we are to hold them up. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You see, when we move to help somebody up, we also move then to help them with their burden. Because we understand that nothing puts a load on somebody's life like sin does. That's why the writer of the book of Hebrews called us to lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us. So when our brother or sister has fallen into sin, what kind of burden are they carrying that they need help with? Well, first and foremost, they're, they're carrying a burden because they're out of fellowship with God. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7 says, If we walk in the light as He, that's God, is in the light, 
we have fellowship one with another. That is, we have fellowship with God. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, I want to make it very clear to you this morning. If you are a child of God, if you have been saved, if you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can say, yes, I was saved. I was saved when I was 7. I was saved when I was 10, 19, 23. You've received Christ as your Savior. You're a child of God, and God is your Father. And nothing is ever going to change that relationship with God. He is your forever Father. But while you cannot lose your relationship with God... You can lose your fellowship with God. You see, God, John told us in that same passage, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. That means if we choose to walk in the darkness, God will not come to us in the darkness and fellowship with us while we're there. There's no means for God to do that. And so when we decide then to walk in the darkness, we forfeit our fellowship with God. People who are in this situation need prayer. They need to pray. But guess what? They don't feel like praying. They need the Word of God. But you know, the Bible will be the last thing they pick up. They need to get in church, get around God's people, but they don't want to go. And if it's something they've incorporated into their lifestyle. And over time it can happen because sin is not just an isolated thing. Before long, sin can put you in slavery so that it becomes a dominating thing in your life. And you got this thing then, a, a sinful thing. Something that's chosen. Something you've chosen. Something that is separating you from your fellowship with God. Not your relationship with God, but your fellowship with God. And it becomes almost a part of your identity. I'll tell you, when that happens and we try to talk to people about it, sometimes they get very harsh, very critical, very cruel. Who are you? Who are you? After all, you're a sinner too. That's right. I'll agree with that real quick. Yes. (laughs) The question of our sin is not really in question. (laughs) All of sin comes short of the glory of God. Guess what? That means me and all of you. All. All means all. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. If we say that we have not sinned, John said, we make him a liar. So that that takes care of that. But the issue is, am I still combating this sin? Do I still recognize it as sin? Or have I got to the place where I'm saying about my sin? There ain't nothing wrong. You can't tell me there's anything wrong with it. Who are you? Yeah, I do this. Yeah, I do this. Y'all have heard this story too. Maybe from both sides. You've been hearing it and maybe you're the one that's been saying it too. You see, that's what happens when we begin to say that we say that we haven't sinned. Oh, there's nothing wrong with this. It's not about the, the presence of sin. As long as we're in this world, sin is going to be a reality. The question is, are we battling it and do we recognize it as sin? That's why this passage tells us if we confess our sin... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. The word confess means to agree. Agree. We say with God, yes. Yes, that sin. So the first burden then that people are bearing is that they have lost their fellowship with God. And we need to help carry that for them. Maybe they don't feel like praying. Pray for them. Maybe they don't be the, read their Bible. Be their Bible for them. 
Their conscience then, secondly, is wounded and hurting. Psalm 32 and 4 says, Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. This was the psalmist David. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Day and night God's hand was heavy upon me. If you're a saved person, truly saved, then when you turn to sin, you can't fill up your life enough. You can't get busy enough. You can't play your music loud enough. You can't find enough games to play. You can't get on the internet and spend enough time on it to keep you from understanding that what you're doing is wrong. That hand of heaviness that you feel is the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. You see, sin promises liberty, but it brings slavery. And it leaves people in misery And I want you to remember something this morning. There's not a pill that will take that away from you. None. It will rob you of the joy of salvation and replace it with the misery of conviction. So when we see people and we want to bear their burden, what part of their burden do we bear? We remind them that they're struggling under a heavy load of conviction and guilt and sin. And they don't have to carry it anymore. They don't have to do that. Every now and then, I just want to ask people, I seldom do. Seldom. Are you tired of being miserable yet? Well, when you are, come see me. I want to say that. Don't always. I don't want to add to that burden. I've already covered that. carry the burden of fear and humiliation perhaps best demonstrated by the first act of sin Genesis chapter 3 and verse 10 when God spoke to Adam and Adam responded I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid some of you folks sitting at home right now maybe grew up in this church or some other church and you hadn't been in years because you're scared You're scared. Scared to go back. You're humiliated. Maybe you struggled with sin and gave up. I want to remind you today, this church, my life, my ministry, we're not devoted to the task of throwing rocks. We're here to help you and restore you. Now, if you want us to condone your sin, I'm I'm sorry, we can't do that. We cannot condone what God condemns. We can't. We won't. I can't tell you that it's okay. Just don't worry about it. Just keep on living. I can't do that. We can't condone what God condemns. But I can tell you that don't be afraid. We're not here to destroy you. We're not here to kill you. We're here to help you. We see you struggling. We know you're hurting. We want to carry that load for you and help you. And so the load, the burden that people carry when they turn from God, their conscience is wounded. They're out of fellowship with God. They're they're fearful and humiliated. The last thing they carry is the voice of accusation. And that's the voice of the enemy. 
great passage, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10 says, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. The accuser. It is the voice of the accuser. Let me be clear about who that is. That is Satan himself. It is the voice of the accuser that you hear who loves to put his words in the mouth of God's people. And he'll tell you, all them people up at church, they'll look down on you. All those people up there in church, they'll never forgive you. All those people up there in church, they're out to get you. All those people, they'll just be mad at you. You'll go back to the church. Nobody will even sit by you. And that's hard to do in COVID time. I mean, I'm sorry. Don't take it personal. We're not mad at you. They're just uh, social distance. It's the voice of the accuser, folk. Not the voice of the Holy Spirit. It's not certainly not our voice. Uh, listen, we love you. We love you because Jesus loved you and died for you. You are a precious commodity. We think about you often. Every Sunday we drive into this church building and gather together and worship. And as we're driving by, we're driving by a treasure. It's hidden. It's lost. That treasure is you. You're lost to God. You're lost to the fellowship of God. You're lost to uh, God's people. You're incredibly precious and valuable. How do we know that? Because Jesus Christ died for your sins. It's the voice of the enemy that wants to keep you in bondage and keep you away from what can help you and what will make you whole. Remember that we operate under this simple a promise, premise, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And right here in our text, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so as we think about lifting up the fallen and how we help one another, and then we hold up one another, we help that person get back on their feet. We help carry their heavy burden, their heavy load. I want to remind you of a few things as we wrap up this morning. First of all, uh, when we look at Jesus' life, remember that sinners always moved him to tears, not to temper. Sinners always moved him to tears, not to temper. The folks that Jesus got really aggravated at were the religious crowd who wanted nothing to do with sinners and would not help anybody and wanted to add to all their burden even though they wouldn't lift a finger to help somebody. Jesus got pretty aggravated with that bunch. He called them a brood of vipers and whitewashed sepulchers. I mean, he had some very abrasive language for them, but that was a religious crowd. He was moved with compassion for the sinful crowd. But we often speak of the weakness of the flesh then, secondly. Uh, so we understand then that Jesus was moved with tears by those who were sinning. And, and we need to be too. We need to feel that same compassion Jesus had. And then when we talk about the weakness of the flesh, and we've done it a lot because it's right here in this passage. Understand that the weakness of the flesh is only about 
when the flesh tries to do spiritual things. If the flesh tries to live righteously before God, if the flesh tries to keep the law, if the flesh tries to please God, if we try by the works of the flesh or the power of the flesh to do things of God, then the flesh is inherently weak at doing spiritual things. But remember, folks, the flesh is very powerful, very strong at doing fleshly things. You understand what I mean? When we talk about the flesh that's being weak, we're not talking about that the flesh can't do anything. The flesh is powerful. And the fact is that all we have to do is stop doing spiritual things and the flesh then starts doing what the flesh does. We, stop it, we start ignoring our, our spiritual uh, disciplines. We stop going to church and serving Him. We stop our prayer life. We stop studying the Bible. We start, stop praising God and being involved in those things. It's just a simple thing. We haven't done this so that we could just say, and although it does happen, it doesn't usually happen this way. It's not some believer who says, well, I'm just going to quit. I'm tired of going to church. I'm tired of trying to live for God. I want to go out and enjoy all that life has while I'm still young enough to enjoy it. That, that does happen, but it's not usually the way it goes. Most of the time, it's a much more gradual process. Paul warned about it. He said, we need to give the more earnest heed to the things that we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Uh, the King James has it. Uh, actual translation could, lest at any time we should drift away. Drift away. Drifting is a slow gradual thing but over time then it can have us far far away from where we intended to go now drifting's not always slow and casual I mean just drive down the road sometime and look over there hey, there's a deer oh man sorry I, I drifted out of my lane inattentive driving y'all know about that boy off the road man that's just it's a big problem but still the result is the same. It, it's just, just a look away, just moving away, and suddenly we're drifting. And drifting can be dangerous in a hurry, but most of the time it's something that happens over time. It's what makes our current situation so dangerous because we've allowed, I'm afraid, a lot of our spiritual disciplines uh, to move away. We've drifted. And it's hard for your brothers and sisters in Christ then to know it because we're so isolated. Used to, if somebody was gone for four or five weeks, hey, we knew you were in trouble. But now it's, it's harder for us to see. It's harder for your brothers in Christ to see. And so we're going to have to work uh, more fervently, more effectively to try to be involved in this ministry of restoration. You which are spiritual, restore such in one in the spirit of meekness. Talk to our home crowd this morning. Uh, maybe you're there and you're watching us on TV. You were raised in church and you remember the time when you received Jesus Christ as your Savior. You haven't been in years and you're scared to go back. And you hear the voice of the accuser constantly saying, Oh, they'll put you down. Oh, they'll be mad at you. Listen, that's the accuser's words. That's not our words. I'm not that kind of pastor. This is not that kind of church. We see you. We know you've struggled. 
God knows you struggle. You might not know all the way you struggle. I don't have to know. I just know there's a welcome for you. I'm not going to condone what lifestyle choices you might have made that were against the plan of God. You know what they are. I can't tell you it's all okay. But I can tell you that you right now are carrying a burden of sin that you were never intended to carry. And that if you will apply 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, you'll find out that God is faithful. If we confess our sin, He, that's God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It all starts when we say, I have sinned. I have sinned. You need to make that admission today. Maybe some of you here have been struggling. You know you've been struggling. Maybe you're here today because you've been struggling. Thank God you are. You say, well, preacher, you must have known I was coming. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. But I know the one who did. Know the one who does know. He's the one that put this message on my heart. For it to be preached the way it's been preached. God has put us in the business of restoring those who are falling. And of helping you get back on your feet. And carry your burden. Oh, we long to help you today. God is reaching out to you. Maybe this morning you need to be saved. Maybe you need to follow the Lord in baptism. Maybe you need a church home. I don't know what's on your heart, but you know and God does. And I plead with you today. That still small voice you feel, you don't hear, you feel. That heavy hand of God that's on you can become a hand that's rubbing your head. A hand on your shoulder saying it's okay. I forgive you. Let's stand together.